Welcome to my first podcast. I'm still figuring this out. And I have with me Alex Krugloff. Say hi, Alex. Hello, hello. Alex, tell folks about your background. Okay. I'm, I'm one of the founders and CEO of a company called Popin. We are a gaming app where people play casual games, the kind of games that you would play at a friend's house at game night, and they do it in real time and in groups. It's a mobile app on iOS and Android, and actually coming soon to the web as well. And the core functionality is that the games are played in real time by real humans. So as a result, folks form real human relationships through gameplay. So it's a gaming app, and it looks like a gaming app, but in many ways, it's a social network that's based on real human relationships that is synchronous in real time. Uh, before that, I spent six years at Hulu, where I was lucky enough to be at the right place at the right time to have joined the founding team there, and I was in charge of content acquisition. So I joined before Hulu launched and saw it through multiple phases, including pure ad-supported video, getting into subscriptions and subscription video on demand, and started various initiatives at Hulu and Originals. I started a total of four other companies that are in different spaces all basically at the intersection of creative expression and technology. Okay, so the, the topic of the podcast is what the fuck is going on in media? And it's a pretty tumultuous time, let's say. And I wanted to have you on because we've been talking in threads about this on LinkedIn, and it seemed like a good conversation to have, given we both come from media backgrounds. I'll just start with the macro and ask you what the fuck is going on in media? Well, it's interesting the way you sort of position the question, because what's behind the way you're phrasing it is a sense of kind of frustration and concern. Whereas for me, I generally see tumultuous errors in media as really exciting because it's an opportunity. When we started at Hulu, it was 2007 and the previous writer strike happened. Um, and this was also during the era of extreme piracy where the music industry was just starting to come out the other end of it, and it was aggressively affecting the video space. And Hulu really launched as a combating solution to piracy, much more so than a competitor to Netflix, which at the time didn't even have a streaming video solution. And then we launched in March of 2008, and there was literally no TV. And Hulu's whole thing was like catch-up TV. And what's interesting is that arguably, if we wouldn't have been as successful if there hadn't been a demand for catch-up that was happening at the time. So my point is, I'm not saying that writer strike is good or bad. What I'm saying is that in times of great turmoil, to me, those are kind of the biggest areas of opportunity for something that is net new and exciting for the consumer to develop. Your listeners are probably going to be in the sophisticated end, so we don't need to get into the history of the sort of the disintegration of the cable ecosystem the launch of subscription video, people not watching live TV and sports and all that stuff. For all intents and purposes, one media company remains, and that's the Walt Disney Company. Everybody else that is kind of comes from what people perceive as media, traditional media, is either already absorbed by a bigger company that makes money elsewhere, or is in the process of trying to be absorbed by a bigger company. And ironically, or maybe not ironically for someone like you, Chris, the biggest media companies uh, now that are standalone and intend to remain standalone are gaming companies. And what's interesting is that the biggest gaming company is not based in the United States or in Helsinki. 
it's Tencent, which is based in China, where we're getting in a position of more and more sour relations between our countries. And so from a consumption standpoint, from a revenue standpoint, from almost every measurement you can imagine, gaming is bigger than what people think of as media. Yet for some reason, whether it's the press or analysts still don't really consider it media per se. So I think that when you think about media and when you think about human interactions with media, you have to think about time spent and you have to think about share of mind. And when it comes to both time spent and share of mind, what we think of historically as traditional media is declining. And to the extent that it's growing, it's growing in a way that is where the consumption patterns and engagement patterns are not what they used to be. It's an area of concern for those who have spent their careers doing one thing or a specific function inside of a big media company, like for example, selling shows into syndication. But it's also a great area of opportunity for innovators, for consumers, and also, in my opinion, for creators. Yeah. So you said something interesting about Disney being the only media company, but what about Warner Discovery? Do you see them as a media company still? I mean, I guess they are, right? It's a well, Warner Discovery, Lionsgate, Paramount, those are all technically standalone media companies. Yeah. What I was alluding to is that based on a variety of signals that they're sending to the marketplace, their intent is not to remain a standalone media company. Their intent is to become a part of some kind of a roll-up or a package, whether yeah. it's owned by Comcast or somebody else that thinks of media as sexy, that thinks of media as a consumer play, but doesn't rely on it to generate returns to shareholders. That's my perspective. I may be wrong, and it's possible that David Zasloff wants to continue doing roll-ups and acquiring other companies. But my assumption at this time is that whether it's a year from now or two years from now, those companies do not remain standalone, pure media plays. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's interesting to me is that the Game of Thrones that's going on is to mix my HBO TV show metaphors is more fascinating than secession right because secession is based on fox and the reality is there's a succession happening at disney there's a succession happening at warner there's a succession happening at comcast right now they're maybe not as much like paramount although they're definitely in play right and the mna that is going to fall out of this I don't know if it's it, if you want to call it a Jenga tower, but it's definitely a, a puzzle that's getting figured out. One thing, given your Hulu background, that I'd love to get your thoughts on is just kind of the role that Hulu plays in all this. Because up until about a week ago, and he made this statement not too long ago, like maybe a month ago, Iger was indicating, okay, we're going to sell Hulu off. And he was sort of saying, yeah, general entertainment. I worry about general entertainment in this era and maybe focus on branding and branded entertainment is the right thing to do. However, then Jeff Shell got himself jettisoned at Comcast and NBC Universal. And that created a whole chain of dominoes, right? Because suddenly, instead of replacing Shell, they move Mike Cavanaugh in, who's the CFO of Comcast. And with this message that like, hey, he's going to be there for a while, maybe a couple of years, and you read kind of the trade press and what they're saying is that that Kavanaugh is basically going to keep things moving until 
there's maybe a new administration that's more M&A friendly that's going to allow more mergers. And then they will go after, it sounds like, Warner or Paramount. In the last week, Roberts has said, yeah, I think the most likely scenario is that we sell Hulu to Disney. So it was looking like Comcast wanted to acquire Hulu and Disney wanted to sell it. Now it's going the other way. What's your thought on that? You and I had a little bit of a public debate on this topic. Not that when I say public, it's not like there were thousands of people in the audience. But I I always thought that when Iger was signaling that he might be willing to sell Hulu, that it was a head fake. I thought that it was a public negotiation where he was trying to essentially get Comcast to agree to a lower price, to signal that he doesn't want it so that Comcast doesn't think that he's going to be willing to pay above what the put call option is, which is already pre-negotiated. Just for those who don't know, There was an agreement put in place when Kevin Mayer was still there for Disney to be able to acquire the remainder of Hulu, a third of Hulu, for, I believe it was $9 billion from Comcast. We need to check the numbers. I may be slightly off. And it was a put-call options, meaning that either Comcast could force it or Disney could force it unless they took it to the market. And so the idea of Comcast stepping up and buying the remainder, two-thirds of Hulu, was always a heavier lift than for Disney to just buy their portion. And in a situation where Wall Street was concerned about Disney's cash flow and operations and there were layoffs and succession issues, I thought that Iger was simply signaling to the market, essentially having a a public negotiation in the market that all options are on the table. So I never thought that they seriously considered selling Hulu. Again, you feel otherwise, and the argument you just made was a thoughtful argument that makes sense. I just kind of always thought about it slightly differently, partly because Perhaps I'm a little bit biased because I think that Hulu being part of the Disney ecosystem is also propping up uh, many of the elements of the Fox acquisition. So FX, run by the brilliant John Landgraf, is really only reaching the consumer through Hulu nowadays, or the kind of consumer that they want, the wealthy, informed consumer, as opposed to somebody who's still accidentally subscribed to cable, maybe because of sports or whatever else. So if you don't have Hulu, what do you do with your adult programming? And there's an argument to be made that you can just put it on Disney Plus. That's what they do outside of the US. But having a division of Disney Plus that is kids focused, family focused, adult focused, oh, has always kind of made more sense. All that said, my nostalgia for Hulu and the company and the product that we built is really for the first decade of Hulu. If you look at Hulu today, it's really not a standalone company in any meaningful way. Yes, it has subscribers that are attributable specifically to Hulu. So if Hulu were to be sold, those subscribers would go with it. But beyond that, it sits on the same technology stack, which is former Major League Baseball's BAM. It has... They moved it it over to BAM? They moved it over to BAM. They forced Hulu to move it over to BAM. They have the same ad-serving platform as what Disney uses. They don't have a standalone originals team or content team. It reports into ABC's. They have a separate office, but for all intents and purposes, it's just a division of the Walt Disney Company. So the standalone nature of Hulu has mostly dissipated over the course of the last three or four years. Uh, Strategically, it's not clear to me that that was a good choice, but it is what it is. At this point, it's kind of a sunk cost and it's, it's now in the past. Now, when it comes to Comcast, we know from press reports that there were significant merger discussions that didn't happen, including with a major gaming company. And we generally know that the Roberts family is acquisitive and likes growing through acquisitions. I also can imagine 
them doing a complex deal where they do a spin out and merger that was happening at the same time. So I think there's a lot of potential options on the table. I could see them, unlike others in the media space, I could see them acting judiciously and making decisions that make strategic sense that may not be driven by the sexiness of media because the place where they make the most money remains not necessarily media per se. It remains in delivering bits of data in thick pipes where they have a monopoly into people's homes. There's so much to unpack there, right? I was at NBCU when the Fox deal got announced, and it was really funny because when I first went to NBCU, they were completely anti-streaming. They were mocking streaming. They thought it was a joke. And they had this service. I'm blanking on what the name was, but it was like a comedy streaming service. I don't know if you remember that. And I do, um, CISO. CISO. And so they were of the opinion that, hey, CISO didn't work and this proves that streaming sucks and we just shouldn't be doing this. And then... Disney did the deal with Fox and announced Disney Plus and everything changed overnight, right? Yes. And they pivoted into Peacock very quickly. And Brian was pissed about the Fox deal because Brian has a little bit of a chip on his shoulder about the fact that Hollywood doesn't take Comcast as seriously as he feels they should, right? And yes. The fact that he wasn't even called for the bidding process for Fox was a, a burr in his craw, right? And that's why they went hostile with that offer because they didn't want Disney to just get it without a fight. And then ultimately they jujitsued that into getting Sky, okay. right? Which was a smart move, but basically was just putting them more in the distribution business than in the content business. I try to imagine, okay, You've got this massive cable business that's declining, but it's kind of a loss leader and you're making it up on the other side with just broadband and other services that they can sell, home security and things like that, that they can kind of piggyback, but it's mostly broadband. And I've heard this scenario that Brian might spin out NBC. I can't imagine that they're only going to want to go back to being a, you know, a boring infrastructure um, company, you a know, boring infrastructure company. Now, maybe he does. Maybe he's just like, look, this is the right business move. And of all the Hollywood personalities, I would say the Robertses are the most practical in that sense, right? That they make like business decisions as opposed to like ego driven, yes. you know, kind of big Hollywood type stuff. Well, I and just to pause, pause there for a second, yeah. Chris, because the opposite of that, the most ego driven, the most legacy driven, the least theoretically rational and obsessed with things he cared about person, which is Rupert Murdoch, did the unthinkable. So that's right. one of the things about media is it's, it remains unpredictable. Yes, that, that's true. That's what makes it fun, right? I mean, there's a reason that they're making succession out of the Murdochs and not out of Kellogg's cereal company or something. You know, well, you're like forgetting the Redstones. The Redstone family is definitely, it's not 50%, but it's a meaningful chunk of, of succession story. The, the, this the, is true. the Redstone family is pretty cool. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. That's the big era that, you know, you were kind of alluding to it earlier. The big era that's over is that family legacy business. And the Roberts are a bit of an exception but they're not the usual prototypes of the family legacy kind of businesses, whether it's the Redstones or the Murdochs. The, for the most part, the families or the Kerkorians, the, the, the families have sort of exited that business, or at least the patriarchs have exited the business. And with some exception, Disney being one, 
the CEOs of most media companies are business people, not creative people, not people who have sort of a deep passion for storytelling. I, I still think Iger is a quasi patriarch. His family didn't start the company, but he has a significant stake in it from he's you been know there a long time, significant yes. number of shares that he accumulated, and he's been there his whole career. If you go back to Cap Cities, right? If you if you kind of grandfather that in, that's pretty much what he's done. I think that he still acts like a quasi patriarch in that there's more considerations there than just business, you know? And the most extreme example of that is how, how consistently he has failed at succession so far, not to use the show that you're referring to. There've been multiple, there've been multiple people that he has appointed as the heir apparent who did not work out partly due to Iger's inability to, to let go. There's an argument to be made that today that is his number one priority is to figure it out. And then those of us who kind of know that world, to me, that's one of the biggest question marks about what happens with the Walt Disney Company, because he has signaled and said to Wall Street very directly that his intent is to have that in place within two years at the longest. And it's a non-trivial exercise and, and one where he's so good at so many things. That's, he has not shown be, to be very good at that so far. Time's a ticket. I have a lot of respect for Bob, but I also feel like the company needs something new. It needs a new perspective. Any leader, even great leaders can overstay, right? One of the rumors that always gets kind of rolled out is this Apple rumor that I always poo-poo because it, it, before I worked at Disney, I worked at Apple and at a computer company called Power Computing which was a Mac clone maker. And this rumor of Apple buying Disney goes back to the eighties. It's been talked about forever, but I'm very biased in that I don't want it to happen as well. Right. Because I just think it would be a terrible for the legacy of Disney to just become a division of, I guess, if you got to be a division of something, you might as well be a division of Apple. But I just feel very strongly that Disney as a iconic company, iconic brand, I just think it's really important that Disney stay standalone and it can acquire things and become bigger or smaller, but I feel very strongly about Disney as a standalone. So I don't want that to happen, although I recognize it could be an outcome, but I do think that what Iger has done at least is he's kind of checked one box, which is, there was this question about, okay, there's a fork in the road. Are you going to divest of assets or are you going to hold on and lean into assets that you had. And I think what he's saying is that we're going to be a media company, not just a branded media company, but a general media company that competes with Netflix, competes with Comcast and competes with whoever's left in the market. And what they're signaling recently, it's two things. One is this Hulu integration, right? So the idea that Hulu is going to get integrated in Disney plus, and they're going to now they're saying they're separate subscriptions, but I think over time that probably just gets folded into one thing. And then the other is they're making noises about taking the contents of ESPN and the cable channel and streaming those, which up until now, ESPN plus has been like the Ocho. It's not the stuff that you get on cable because they get paid a lot of money to put that stuff on cable. If they're really willing to go there now, to me, that's a secret weapon, right? But it comes with a cost as well, because if you're going to keep ESPN and 
you're going to really lean into that and say, okay, sports is one of the main draws to get a Disney plus slash Hulu plus the combo subscription, then they're going to have to put the capital into continuing to acquire the sports rights, which are going to get more and more expensive. And they're competing against Amazon. Now they're competing against Apple. They're competing against, you know, guys with way deeper pockets, but it seems like that's what they're going to do. If they do that and they really bring ESPN, I don't know when they're going to be able to do it. I don't know the particulars around when the renewals are up with the cable companies, but I think it's fairly soon. If they were to, within the next two, three, five years, launch a full streaming service around ESPN as part of the Disney Plus diaspora, that's pretty powerful and allows them to start to really challenge Netflix in a way that... Up until now, Disney Plus has been this complimentary product. But if they have ESPN, they have Hulu. Now they've got a pretty comprehensive offering, right? It's funny because I technically subscribe to ESPN Plus because I opted in for the Hulu Disney Plus ESPN Plus deal because it was cheaper than getting Disney Plus and Hulu separately. But I've never once watched anything on ESPN Plus. There's just nothing on it that I'm interested in. So one of the things that that Bob Iger did is ESPN is now a separate division with a CEO, Jimmy Fataro, who's a highly, highly capable executive who doesn't come from pure sports the way his predecessors did, but he comes from being on the tech side and the consumer side of tech. He, before he joined Disney, he ran Yahoo Media. So if you're running ESPN and whether you continue staying in the massively declining cable space or whether you make it available directly to the consumer, you have no choice but to pay up to the leagues and the leagues are very very good even better than media companies at extracting the absolute top dollar every single time with every renegotiation moreover they're very good at creating new revenue streams for themselves and creating new modes of consuming games just look at the nfl schedule and how many different separate things they have thursday night sunday night monday night and so on and so if you have standalone businesses and you don't make money elsewhere then you have to essentially justify the cost through your revenue and you have no choice but to operate with razor thin margins. Whereas companies like Amazon and Apple and Google um, who just took over TV's Sunday ticket don't have to worry about profitability per se if they have other parts of the business that are very high gross margin and can benefit from having the media plug-in. So from a competitive positioning, if you remain a purely standalone media company that, as you put it, competes with Comcast and with Netflix and with others in the space, you are not going to be a very attractive company from a Wall Street standpoint. Um, So if you were to ask me, I would do the following. I would very much follow the Peter Thiel approach of always trying to be a monopolist. So where is Disney a monopolist? Disney is a monopolist in a specific category of brands where they have brands that have, that have the kind of affinity that doesn't seem to be slowing down over time, including all the way back to Mickey Mouse, which is now 100 years old. They have it with Pixar. They have it with Marvel. They have it with some other brands that are in Lucasfilm and some other brands that are in their portfolio. And I would really double down on extracting maximum value from those brands and continuing the legacy of essentially creating much higher margin returns on those brands. I would launch a hundred plus dollar a month Disney subscription, which would include visits to the theme parks and or ships 
I would make it so that even at $100 plus a month, it's a thing that every parent who makes more than $50,000 a year is going to want to sign up for. And I would sell ESPN because ESPN is the strongest brand in sports, in sports media. It is not the strongest brand in sports. The strongest brand in sports right. is the NFL and the NBA and even baseball and even hockey is a stronger brand than ESPN. So I would sell it. And I would use that capital to double down on what Disney has been very good at, which is acquiring other entities that can contribute to its brand creation portfolio. But see, this is where, where I get spun up, right? Because I'm very much with you that I thought that what Disney should focus on is being a branded entertainment company. And the value is created in being able to create IP that you can exploit through theme parks and through merchandise and through other avenues. And my thinking, and this is unpopular thinking at Disney, my thing is like, look, stop fucking around with all these cable channels, sell that stuff off. It's the past, right? It's all kept alive by subscription fees from cable that are going away anyway. ESPN, for all its merits, is a ticket to spend a lot of money, to your point, at very low margin because the rights are so expensive. And you're just almost trying to fight to defend your turf in sport against everyone else who wants a piece of it and put that money into games because there's a multi-billion dollar industry there that today benefits with huge games that are made based on the Disney IP. Disney's very successful in the games business. They just do it through licensing. And if they were to own those studios and own those, those profits, it would be a more profitable business ultimately than probably the media side of the business. I've always said it's inevitable that Disney will have to, will either acquire a games company or get acquired by a games company. I believe that. It's just a question of when, right? Yeah. Are they going to see the light now? Is it going to be in five years? Is it going to be in 10 years? And so my instincts are the same as yours, but Iger seems to be going a different direction. He's saying, you know, but historically, saying, oh, but, but, I'm going to keep Hulu. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to keep ESPN. And look, I would love, I work for Jimmy Pitaro. I love Jimmy Pitaro. I'd love to see Jimmy Pitaro as CEO of that company or kept in the family, right? And have a very significant role. But I think that they keep trying to win this media war and keep trying to like beat Netflix instead of running their own race. And I just don't see how that's going to work out. I don't so know. As, you, as you know, Chris, Disney has bought gaming companies before sizable ones. You were very heavily involved in that. And, you know, if not you sizable ask, enough though. Sure. But sizable-ish. And whether it's Club Penguin or Playtime, yeah. I mean, and, and they just haven't worked out historically, partly because it wasn't in their DNA and they haven't done very well. I think that Apple is a good example of a company that is never the first mover in anything, but they look at an industry and when an industry gets to a certain level of maturity, they come in and, and they launch something that is magical and within something that works, whether it's a box that has a bunch of songs on it, whether it's a smartphone or, or a VR device, which is coming up, they tend to launch something that is an order of magnitude better than something that is already a thing and is working. Disney is different from Apple in that it, it doesn't tend to organically launch anything or build anything, right. uh, including even animation. You know, they had to buy Pixar to do it. But Disney has done a number of head fakes in the past where they are signaling that they're not interested in the space. And then they make a major acquisition or a major launch to do it. An example of that is, I know how unpopular Hulu was 
when Disney was a one-third shareholder within the Disney family. And then not only that, they did a major, major license of all of their movies to Netflix, which looked like a big long-term deal. And then boom, Disney Plus is launching. They're buying the rest of Hulu together with Fox and they're doubling down. And all of a sudden they went from not interested in the space to being the biggest player of the media companies in the streaming space. I think that there's something that, and again, maybe this is wishful thinking on my behalf because I agree with your wish, but I think that there's a high likelihood that they're waiting to see if there is a successful integration between a gaming company and a media company that is at scale, like the EA NBC deal that didn't work out. Uh, And even if there's not, if there's a significant IPO that's coming up by somebody like Epic or somebody like that, they come in and make a big, bold move. And realistically, because they don't have the DNA of what it takes to run a successful gaming company, they do need to acquire a sizable company so that they have the skill sets of of an Catmull to run something successfully or Kevin Feige to run something successfully and indefinitely. I'm not saying that Tim Sweeney would be interested in being bought by anybody or being an executive at Disney, but there is, whether it's Epic, whether it's Roblox, there is a play to be made uh, that they could do that is big and bold and very exciting to Wall Street. The reason that gaming didn't work out at Disney, and we could go through some of the execution foibles of which there were many, but I would argue just as big were the antibodies that were just trying to kill all these acquisitions the second that the check was signed, right? Jay Rizzullo used to say, we're just not good at buying anything that's less than a billion dollars in value. If it's less than a billion dollars, the antibodies come out and it's just too easy to kill and too easy to write off. If it's a Marvel, Pixar, Star Wars kind of bet the company level acquisition, then the machine works the opposite way, which is everyone integrates everything and synergizes, right? Yes. That's what Disney needs to make to make a gaming acquisition successful is they need something of significant scale with existing revenue, with existing profit. That's not a think piece, right? They know it's a gaming company that knows how to run itself. And it's not looking for Disney leadership to come in and tell them how to make games. And the value that's going to create it is by being plugged into the rest of the machine. Epic, And I continue to think Epic would be the most transformational deal they could buy. But I think something like Epic or Roblox, in my view, are more synergistic with where the Disney company should be in 10 or 20 years than... Or something creative, like, for example, if the U.S. government is putting pressure on China and Tencent has to divest of Riot, that's another possibility. It's an L.A.-based company. Something like that. Something but those sizable. types of things, something really big that they could plug into to the rest of the company. And something that has a strong brand. It has to have a strong consumer brand. So Activision would probably, even though they have huge brands, would probably be a bad example because their biggest IP is not the kind of stuff that's very Disney friendly. And Activision is a roll-up of a bunch of different brands. That's why I think Fox was not necessarily a very good acquisition for Disney. So in many ways, Epic is kind of perfect because they have... Fortnite, but then they also have the Unreal Engine, which is which is a technology that Disney's already been using in a variety of different environments. And Disney can take a monopolistic position, which they like, of essentially saying, we're going to decide who gets to use the Unreal Engine and in what ways and make a, a bigger thing out of it than you can out of North Carolina. Right. So- and it goes back to your Peter Thiel thing about being a monopoly. I would also argue that the most successful Disney acquisitions were always the ones that had an impact on 
culture, Pixar being probably the most substantial there. You know, Marvel, there were a lot of negatives from that. A lot of people got, I think, unfairly treated in the process. But Marvel wasn't entirely wrong that there was a lot of inefficiency and red tape and, and bureaucracy and bullshit and wasted cash in Disney. And so each one of those acquisitions sort of came with something that was transformative. The company it wasn't just the content creation capability. And I think that Epic would would do that as well. But in the time that we have remaining, I want to pivot off of Disney because we talked about that a lot and speculate a little bit about the other guys because you've got Paramount out there. You've got Warner Brothers Discovery. Then you've got smaller guys, Lionsgate, Sony, those types of guys. But it really seems like Paramount and Warner Brothers Discovery is in play. I'd love to get your views on Warner Brothers. It seems like Zaslav is doing a better job than AT&T, at least, in kind of cleaning things up. I think that putting James Gunn in charge of DC is a masterstroke. And by the way... I think a great object lesson in why cancel culture is such a stupid fucking idea, because if Disney had not hair trigger fired James Gunn, he never goes to Warner Brothers, who bailed him out basically when his career was in jeopardy. He never does Suicide Squad and he never becomes the head of DC. So their loss is totally Warner Brothers gain. What's your what's your view on Warner Brothers Discovery? How do you see how do you see Paramount and all of this? I generally think that David Zaslav has historically operated in a manner that signals to Wall Street that he understands finance. So a CFO inside of a David Zaslav organization has a much stronger function than a CFO inside of other He's a P&L uh, guy, not a, not a creative guy, right? Right. And he wants to be he wants to be known as a friend to Hollywood, but I think he thinks about a cost a great deal. I think that there are some choices that they made that were, to me, were very baffling. Taking a movie that's complete and choosing not to release it, that costs many, many tens of millions of dollars to make, that don't quite compute for me. But I think he's standing up the company to either buy somebody or to be bought. They have a huge amount of debt that remains on their books that puts a lot of pressure on them. They have CNN, which is losing ratings like crazy without an election and without the noise of Trump. And so, yes, you're right. There's some strong signals. I, I think it's interesting to put James Gunn in charge of DC, but you have to remember movies take a really, really long time to make. Yeah. Uh, and there's already a number of movies that are complete. The Flash that's coming out soon, which I understand has gotten very it's good reviews great. so far. It looks great. But to create a cinematic universe takes takes at least a decade. And James Gunn, he's got a lot of energy, but he's not that young. So I think it's interesting, but when it comes to a company that is measured on a quarterly basis, there's likely to be more pressure than not in a place like that. So what happens, I don't know, but I predict that it's not a standalone company um, at the end of 2024. And I think that Sherry Redstone is very different from her father. She has certainly done an incredible job of staying out of the public limelight. And when she does speak in podcast or give interviews, she's humble and thoughtful and measured. And Bob Backish is a salesperson. He comes from international sales. So he's running the company quite dispassionately. I think that Paramount Plus is neither here nor there. The CBS network is certainly not what it used to be. And the challenge for Paramount, which is similar to this challenge for Lionsgate, 
is that it's ironically too small to be standalone, but it's too big to be sold to an obvious buyer. So imagine an alternate universe where Lionsgate didn't buy stars and Lionsgate remained a very lean IP creation and distribution company. Then it would have been bought by Amazon instead of MGM, which had hair on it. But now that it has this giant albatross around its neck with stars and all of the cost that comes with creating a consumer subscription business, it's unclear who's going to buy an asset like that. So I think it's an uncertain future. I would never give anybody financial advice, but it's not obvious to me that you would want to throw your money at any company in the media space other than Disney and Netflix. And you haven't mentioned Netflix because they're not a historic legacy media company, but according to every metric that you can think of, Netflix is very much a media company today. And hopefully they're going to expand and do more than what they're doing now. But today they're literally a single revenue stream, double if you include advertising, which they recently launched, a media company where its costs and its revenue are just exactly the same as any kind of media company that's out there, most of which are focusing on streaming as well. And we haven't talked about Amazon. We could go to three, four hours. We'll have to do a second version of this podcast. I know that Comcast wants to buy something. And I know that they've had interest in Paramount before. It's been publicly reported that they've recently had conversations within the last couple of years. So I think they have their eye on Paramount, but I think they really want Warner. Warner makes more sense. If you think about Paramount, there's a broadcast network. You can't own two broadcast networks. Right. So that's a bit of a challenge. Warner is a very nice asset mix. It fits together very very nicely. Yeah. Folds in very easily. They bought NBCU wanting to compete with Disney, but NBCU didn't really come with as much IP as they would have liked. And they've been unsuccessful in creating it. There's tons of IP at Warner, not just TV, but Looney Tunes, HBO, you know, there's HBO, there's tons of stuff. So they'd love to have that as an asset, all of that folded into Peacock or whatever, Pmax, whatever they, whatever it, (laughs) Maxcock, whatever they turn it into, instantly becomes a pretty credible challenger to both Disney and Netflix. There's synergy with the theme parks. Like it just kind of writes itself. Well, the theme parks don't sleep on the theme parks. You know, we don't talk about universal theme parks, but it's a real business and it's very profitable and it's making a lot of money, but most of its IP is licensed, right? So they have Harry Potter, they have Simpsons. And so if they were to acquire the Warner's assets, there would be a lot more IP that wouldn't need to be licensed or where they could really invest in, in blowing it out. So there's a ton of potential there. And also, if they really create an asset that's that big, they could expand the theme parks to be the first and only challenger to Disney that's out there. They could buy a cruise company and expand into cruises that are themed. And by the way, the thing about Universal that most people don't talk about very much, Illumination Entertainment has really produced some very, very impressive IP. And for all intents and purposes, it's a division of universals. There's some, there's some really interesting stuff that they've, that they've done. Uh, But I agree with you. I think Warner as a standalone would have been a lot easier to buy. Warner Discovery now has all this other stuff that Comcast may or may not care about, but Comcast also owns Sky and Discovery is very big international and they have significant sports rights outside of the US. So that could also be an interesting plan. I would be shocked if considering how Warner's deal was announced, that none of us heard about it until it was announced, including my old boss, Jason Kyler, I think there's a world in which they're already having discussions that are camped out in certain rooms and we'll just hear about a deal later this year. It's definitely not impossible. 
Maybe it's later this year. The speculation of the media is that they're waiting past the election. Lena Khan is currently at the FTC. She's taken a pretty grim view to mergers and the Biden administration is just not, they've been harder on tech, but I think that they're is a sense that there will be reluctance from the administration to allow more mergers and that if there's a change in party, that there may be a more friendly audience there. You can see, though, that the reason that they put Kavanaugh there temporarily is to buy them time to figure this out. I think putting a CFO in place is always a holding pattern situation. Yeah. He does understand m and That's not nothing. He's a banker, right? right? He's a banker and he has the skill set. What the media has said, and what I know from behind the scenes, though, is that there was a lot of frustration with Shell outside of his peccadillo, shall we say, that he had not been more aggressive and made some moves. Jeff talks a big game, but he's a very cautious guy. And Brian wants to win. I think the biggest impediment, other than regulatory or just getting the terms with a Warner Brothers Discovery deal, would be of Zaslav terms around. Warner Brothers discovery faster and the stock price goes up and then it makes it who knows what happens with all these variables are moving at one time, right? I mean, Comcast could go down, Warner Brothers could go up and then maybe Waystar buys Gojo. There's also some complications because AT&T is a significant shareholder in the Warner Brothers discovery organization. It's definitely complicated. And candidly, I don't know how meaningful it is to the consumer. I think that there's a world in which there's a political implication to SNBC and CNN being owned by the same company. But for the most part, if a merger like that goes through, I don't really know if anything changes from a consumer standpoint. I think one topic that I think is interesting is, is the timing of this writer strike. There's an argument to be made that the writers are in a position where they really need a, a good new deal in order to be able to to survive in the coming environment. But there's also an argument to be made that this is the absolute worst possible time to have gone on a strike where lots of media companies have a bunch of shows that are banked. Um, there's AI, which is quite helpful for things like soap operas and even potentially late night talk shows to at least create some editable scripts that somebody else can edit on top of it. And, and then there's also cost savings that every media company is obsessive about right now so the writers have arguably forced an unanticipated tightening of purse strings where all of a sudden media companies no longer have to pay for a bunch of stuff that has been effectively a fixed cost for all intents and purposes. They always root for talent. So I'm bullish on writers getting paid properly for their work, but I'm a little pessimistic about the potential outcome because I see the media companies essentially stalling indefinitely until the writers come back and basically say, oh, shit, we're not getting paid. We need to come back to the negotiating table because otherwise we can't pay the bills. I just don't know what to make of the writer strike. I'm with you that I generally want to side with talent. I think that the other thing that's interesting in this is now there's talks that sag may try to strike as well. DGA, that they're all coming up at the same time. Yeah, the DGA and sag are all within the next month as the, the deals are up. But when and the DGA them, is the one, the DGA is the one that is usually most contentious with the studios. They always feel like they don't their due. So the predicted move that this results in a positive outcome is that the SAG-AFTRA and DGA don't strike. The studios renegotiate with them. And then the, the template that they create for them is a new template that they come back to for writers and writers agree to that. That's standard line of thinking. And again, I want talent to get paid. I certainly think that a lot of 
money got taken off the table by the lack of syndication and, and additional revenue streams. On the other hand, there were fewer writers because there were fewer shows and there were a very small number of people like Larry David and Chuck Lorre and Jerry Seinfeld who made outsized returns. And then most writers, because most shows didn't, not only didn't get syndicated, but didn't go past the first six episodes. And so now there's a lot more content being made, but there's fewer episodes, smaller writers' rooms, and those trade-offs are tricky. But at the end of the day, there's total dollars that the ecosystem is making, and then there's total distribution of those dollars. Media companies, unlike others, have been notoriously bad about signaling that their top executives are paid an obnoxiously large sum of money and are living in an over-the-top way. And that sends a signal to writers that, hey, we're underpaid. But the reality is that the companies themselves are operating on pretty thin margins and are not exactly doing all that great. So if certain costs go up, then other savings have to come somewhere else. And most likely, it's not going to come from top executives cutting their pay. It's going to come from a lot of other folks who are not unionized who are going to get laid off. So it's a tricky situation. Speaking of that, one of the things that most impresses me about Netflix and their culture is that when they are tightening their belts, they let go very senior people who make a lot of money. They're not just letting go the grunts that everyone else does. And they're like, hey, you know, these 50 people are now laid off. Netflix will say, no, no, we're going to let go two people. And those two people are getting paid as much as 50 people who are going to keep their jobs. That to me is very interesting and not at all like hardly any companies that are in the marketplace. Disney certainly shed a lot of executives, but I think there's two sides to cost of these companies, right? One is there are a lot more executives, even in a pared down state than they probably need to operate. And those executives are paid probably too much relative to where the market's at. And the second is just the bloat, right? I don't know if this is true, but they used to say that if it was a law firm that Disney had the first or second largest law firm in the country, I don't know if that's true, but we had a lot of fucking lawyers and there's a lot of mandarins at these companies, right? There's a lot of gatekeepers. There's a lot of bureaucracy that frankly, I think holds the media business back in a lot of ways that, that will be healthy to shed. That was a period of time also when Philippe Damon, the CEO of Viacom, was making the most money of any executive in all of publicly traded companies. So all of S&P 500, while Viacom was losing market share. Yeah, so yeah. you compare him to Google or to Apple, he was making the most money per year while the company was losing enterprise value. That's very difficult to justify. I think the shakeout's going to be for everyone. What I was going to say about the writer strike is I know enough to know I don't know enough, but it just seems to me like shit rolls downhill. And the problem for everyone is that business models are collapsing. Windows are collapsing as channels go away. There's less opportunity for, you know, some of these shows that were propped up by cable subscription fees, the framework of cable, it created competition for advertisers, but it's protected each one of these channels because you could have nobody watching and still get paid a certain number of cents per sub for 10 years because you were bundled in with ESPN network like Disney XD, which had been Fox kids. They could never figure out what to do with that thing. And there's just not a place for those networks anymore. And when they go away, the shows that they're carrying, which no one may be watching, they're still providing revenue and profit to somebody, right? To the writers, residuals, all that. Ultimately, it feels like there's no escaping the consolidation that's going to happen there. And everyone's going to take some pain. At the same time, I don't think that 
that writers on top shows should have to have a day job in order to write which scripts. we're seeing so, we're like, seeing we're seeing reports in the news which i didn't know about that there were some writers who are on top shows that have six eight episodes a year or that are like babies and stuff when they work for 12 weeks and they're getting paid good money during the 12 weeks they're working five grand a week which is a very solid income but it's only 12 weeks and so that's not quite enough especially if you have if you have a family the one thing that's worth saying that i think you and i agree on but it's worth saying for the listeners, because I think there's a lot of people in, in tech and there's a lot of people on Wall Street who think of creative people as a commodity. And they think that when the cost of the creation, so whether it's the cameras and the lights and equipment or whether it's editing or things like AI, when the cost goes down, then infinitely more great content can be made. And that is just fundamentally false. The number of people who have the qualifications to make something great creatively is a finite group. I think with more people who are not from LA and who come from specific schools being able to enter the industry, that group is expanding and there's more great stories that are being created. But the percentage of humans who are qualified and capable of making something that is great, number one, and two, sustainable, meaning it lasts for a meaningful period of time, is very, very tiny. And so I think that it's always worthwhile to recognize that some of those people deserve all of the Tina Fey's of the world and the Shonda Rhimes of the yeah. world, their days of the world. They deserve all the money that they're making because on the back of their of their output, massive enterprises have been and continue to be created. So that part is always lost or often lost in a conversation amongst people who are not affiliated or who are not close enough to the creative industries because they think of these as shifting commodity, commodity resources. And that's just simply not the case. And this is where I think it's interesting that SAG-AFTRA may go on strike at the same time as the writer's strike. Because if I had to decide where I was going to allocate my capital, it would be more towards showrunners, writers, directors, people who create original stories that can create IP that can become decades-long franchises, as opposed to I'd be looking to pay less to actors who are more of a commodity, right? I mean, yes, there's a small canto of actors that can deliver box office, but that's less and less and less and less. And the era of the Hollywood star is over and there's a lot of really talented people who want to act. So that seems like an imbalance too, right? Certainly movie actors are overpaid relative to showrunners and to working actors. I agree with you that that the creatives, specifically storytellers, the ones that originate the ideas and execute the ideas, deserve what they're worth. So in summary, Disney needs to buy a game company. Actors are overrated. Comcast needs to buy Warner Brothers Discovery. And I think we've solved Hollywood, right? And I think Netflix need to introduce additional revenue streams, additional experiences where they can charge more from the consumer. And they're already hinting at that happening and are starting to introduce it, which to me is very interesting because on the one hand, you have this far too many subscription services, far too many upsells. We're paying far too much for stuff. On the other hand, you have companies where people like you and I really want them to be standalone, successful operating businesses that are dependent on a single revenue stream with a declining margin. So I'm hopeful that just as some of the great tech companies that have transitioned leaders into second and third generations are now better than ever, whether it's Apple or Microsoft, arguably Google, hopefully companies like Netflix, which are new to media, but obviously a runaway success story that they can make a similar transition. 
and wrap up, even though it's the final season of Succession, we know that Game of Thrones never ends. So probably we will get all this wrong and there will be more room to speculate down the road. So thanks, Alex, for, for coming on. It was, it was a pleasure. And thanks for being my guinea pig. Thank you for having me.